Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Oh, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. We are excited to kick off the week by answering your questions on the Word of God. And uh, just a little note on how things operate around here. If you've got a sincere question about the Bible, maybe it's a question about a particular passage in the Bible, maybe it's personal issues in your walk with God, maybe it's a tough question that uh, you've been asked about your Christian faith, or maybe you've always had a tough question you'd like to ask about the Bible, bring them on. We would love to be able to tackle those issues from a decidedly biblical point of view as the broadcast unfolds. Uh, You can uh, get those questions to us by a number of different avenues, uh, including your questions about the events of today, current controversies, even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. Uh, We are looking forward to uh, letting you be the one who uh, sets the agenda for our broadcast. Uh, We don't decide in advance the subjects that we think you should hear about. Rather, we want to respond to those things that are on your heart and on your mind each and every day. That's what A Reason for Hope's all about. Uh, I'm joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richard. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, you can join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab and send your questions to us, either through the Questions tab or on the right-hand side of the screen as we are broadcasting live from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time or Pacific if it is not Daylight Savings Time. If you'd like to email us, it is listed at the bottom of the screen at questions, F-O-R-Hope, at gmail.com. If you're listening on one of our radio affiliates, you can use that resource as well. It is available, of course, both on and off hours. We'll be happy to receive your questions if they are sincere about the Bible and in the form of a question. If you also want to join us on YouTube, it's a reason for hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And if you give us a like or subscribe to us there, you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. However, since we can't control when or how or why we are taken off the air on those platforms, we want to make sure that you are not interrupted from your viewing of the broadcast as you are ministered to by it. Join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That, of course, will be our highest recommendation because we can actually decide when we go live and when we don't. Yes. So with (laughs) that being said, um, as long as your questions are sincere about the Bible and in the form of a question, they are welcome on the broadcast. But note as well that we want to make sure we dedicate this time to the Lord so that he will speak more than we speculate. So why don't we start with a word of prayer and see where the Lord takes us. Yeah, absolutely. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be able to explore your word together. That's what we want to do here today. We pray that you would uh, sovereignly bring the questions across our path that you want answered. We pray, Father, that as your word goes forth, you would honor uh, what you promised about your word, that it would never return to you void, but it would always accomplish what you sent it out to do. We thank you, Lord, that when your word's proclaimed, your word tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 3, that you sent it out for edification, exhortation, and comfort. So we pray, 
for those who are investing the time to be with us on the broadcast today, they'd be edified. Their knowledge of your word would be built up. They'd be exhorted. They'd discover how to apply the principles we find in your word, and they'd be comforted with the message of your amazing grace and your unconditional love demonstrated when Jesus died for us and rose from the grave. Thank you, Lord, that we can give this time to you. We pray that you'd be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. So going out to our questions, so we've received a few by email. We'll start with this interesting one. This is from David. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 20, Peter interprets Psalm 109 and verse 8 to mean that someone should take the place of Judas as one of the 12 apostles. Obviously, when he read through Psalm 109 and pretty much every one before Judas's suicide and the founding of the apostles treated it differently. He did not sense it was referencing anything prophetic, so he's curious to know how Peter came to this conclusion. He's also curious how this plays into Christians who take a particular verse and use it out of context. Could that have been an issue here? Thank you. Well, thank you, David. And obviously, this is a key issue when it comes to our exhortation that the context is king, that the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. However, when we note exceptions to the rule, we make sure that it's on the one authority that can tell us Scripture's meaning above any other. Our job in what's called hermeneutics or Bible interpretation is to figure out in the data that we actually have what the author's intention was. Right. And we use the context as one of many methods to test those things. We can also look at the history surrounding it, the language and environment it was spoken in, the audience it was spoken in. That's us interpreting it. But there is another individual who could interpret this passage for us, which the Apostle Peter, as well, made an observation about regarding words of prophecy being of no private interpretation, but those who revealed Scripture were moved by who? Themselves or their interpretations? No, No, the the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. So by the Holy Spirit, which you also read, hopefully, in Acts chapter 1, excuse me, I choked on myself there, Uh, The Apostle Peter made an observation by the Holy Spirit. We can make an interpretation or the author can give an explanation. So when it comes to that passage, who was the one revealing it and why do we trust Peter was actually speaking by the Spirit? Well, uh, uh, probably (laughs) the the best way to understand this is by referring to a promise that Jesus made directly to his disciples with Simon Peter present. He said in Acts chapter 16 and verse 17, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Yeah, and once again, we see that the Holy Spirit was there in a very special way to anoint the apostles to be able to speak God's Spirit-inspired words. We see that this was not just true regarding Simon Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and uh, able to proclaim the gospel in a very powerful way, but we also see that the Apostle Paul claimed that same authority as one of the designated apostles that God had set forth to lay out the truth of his word. He said very boldly, do you not understand the things that I share with you in 1 Corinthians 14, are the Lord's command. Uh, No less an individual than Simon Peter looked at uh, the statements of the Apostle Paul and said that they were on a par with the other scriptures in 1 Peter chapter 3. So when we see the apostles speaking to Old Testament passages, when we see, for instance, uh, Matthew uh, quoting uh, the book of Hosea, out of uh, Egypt I've called my son, 
there are those who will take a look at that and uh, do uh, term papers on what was called Matthew's hermeneutic, how uh, Matthew could take a passage from Hosea and use it in a prophetic sense. Well, you know, again, the Holy Spirit-inspired authors of the Scripture, uh, listening to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, had every right to be able to say, here was a prophecy that was being fulfilled. Now, the, the big question comes in, and I think this is the, the gist of what you're getting to. Well, okay, but don't we have that same uh, mandate from God to rightly divide the word of truth, say the passage that you're referring to in Psalm 109? Well, you know, again, I think uh, we do, but we are given certain guidelines, certain uh, parameters, if you will, that can keep us on track. Uh, in other words, uh, my particular uh, point of view on Scripture would be if I had just the book of Hosea on uh, Out of Egypt I'd Called My Son, I might never come to the conclusion that this referred to the fact that God would supernaturally intervene and send the young Jesus to Egypt until the uh, time that uh, King Herod had passed away. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, because I have the benefit of 2020 hindsight and I do have the rest of the scriptures, I can take a look at that and say, all right, here we see a passage in the Word of God that the Holy Spirit-inspired New Testament author says is prophetic. Okay, I'm willing to take that at face value, uh, that Matthew was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, when other people will take a look at certain passages of Scripture that we find, and they think that they're prophetic, but we don't see that confirmation in the New Testament, especially concerning the life and teaching of Jesus. I always say, well, possibly, but uh, there's an asterisk there. In fact, some of the passages that are uh, roundly suggested to be prophetic. For instance, uh, where did you receive those wounds on your arms and your hands? Well, I received them at the, the house of my friends uh, from the book of Zechariah. Uh, there are those who say, well, see, this is referring to the wounds on Jesus uh, of crucifixion, and he received them at the house of my friends, and so this was prophetic. Well, there's a problem with that, two problems with it. First of all, in the near context in Zechariah, that's not referring to uh, a, a godly individual. It's referring to a false prophet who had the cuts on their arms and their hands that were very characteristic of those who would worship, say, deities like Baal and others. Secondly, we don't see any New Testament author pointing back to Zechariah and saying this was a prophecy of Scripture. So probably the best way that we can stay on track as far as which prophecies were on target, including the ones quoted by Simon Peter in, in Acts chapter 1, uh, is to take a look at the New Testament as our guide to which prophecies we need to pay serious attention to in the Old Testament. Uh, one might not look at Psalm 109 and say beforehand, well, Messiah will be betrayed. Uh, we can take a look at other passages of Scripture that do uh, seem to indicate that that was going to be the case. But uh, because we have uh, the, uh, not only the, uh, the Old Testament divinely inspired, but we have the New Testament divinely inspired, we can take a look back and say, okay, here is a passage. You and I might not take a look at that and have chosen it to be uh, something that is uh, readily available or readily obvious to be uh, a prophecy regarding the ministry of Messiah or the, uh, the guidance of the, the Lord going forth. But here we see in the book of Acts that this was, in fact, the case. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, the fact that the Holy Spirit was promised to guide the disciples into all truth, 
that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, that he opened their understanding, we are told, to understand the scriptures in a unique and special way. Uh, you know, again, we are called to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, the God's promise that he would lead us into all truth is still true to a certain extent in our lives, but certainly not in the sense that uh, it would be in the uh, foundational ministry of these apostles. So because of those very special designations Jesus gave to them, I think we can trust their comments on passages like Psalm 109. All right, so let us know if that helps you out, David. And if you need further information about the significance of other passages, we'll just bring it back to the first point, or I guess the last point that you made, is regarding does this then justify other people taking these things out of context? No, because understand Psalm 109's interpretation is given to us explanations of other passages out of context aren't, so we take the next most rational step. What actually makes sense given the passage at face value? If we can't know, then that is something that we can file away for further information or do more investigating. Maybe the passage will be explained yet again in the future. If I'm reading Genesis and something doesn't make sense and suddenly it comes up in Revelation, I could have a V-date. That uh, might actually clear things up. But if, on the other hand, I say, well, you take Psalm 109 and verse 8 to mean this, so why can't I take this passage to mean that? Well, there's a problem. You are making the interpretation on your authority. The Apostle Peter was making that interpretation on the Holy Spirit's authority. The author has the right to impose his interpretation on a passage because he's the one who introduced it. That is our handling of the text. That's how we remain consistent on this handling of the text, and that is why we don't abuse this on other texts. Yeah, and I guess to put it as simply as possible, you know, I've published a number of books in my life and times, and sometimes I'm not as clear as an author as I might be. And there are individuals who will say, well, did you mean this or that in a particular passage, say in your book, uh, Reasonable Doubts? Well, when they ask me personally, I can give them the, the definitive statement rather, uh, rather than uh, having someone else speculate on a particular paragraph or passage in the books that I've written. Why? Because I'm the author. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is the author of scriptures, and he gets the opportunity to be able to be definitive as far as what these scriptures mean. Again, not because he was unclear, but because he is clarifying. Right. Uh, Here's another question we received by email. Uh, I'll make it anonymous since the point is moot. there, the individual who's leaving the question is concerned about the ministry of an individual their nephew is caught up with and wants to know if there's anything else they can show them. And they also want to know if another ministry is a false preacher as well. I'll mention the name since we can pretty much say definitively not. Uh, John Piper. And uh, I'm spacing on the name of his ministry, his local fellowship and so forth at his website. He produces a number of blogs. Now, when we're talking about John Piper, spelled P-I-P-E-R, he is definitely unapologetically and passionately an adherent to Calvinism. Right. Now, we don't agree with the things that he would deny, but certainly in the things that he affirms, especially when they are supported by Scripture. We wouldn't say he's a false teacher, but we would say that he places emphases on certain passages over others that we wouldn't necessarily agree with. The good news is this is not a salvation issue. It is a secondary one. As far as people are caught up in their ministry that would take things too far, that would be on a case-by-case and claim-by-claim basis. But as far as uh, John Piper being a false preacher, no, not at all. Uh, He fully believes what he's teaching. What he is teaching insofar as it lines up with the Word of God, like any true teacher, 
is sound and his interpretations come from his worldview. He doesn't dismiss or discount, at least not overtly and frequently, anyone who doesn't hold his positions or views, but he would have responses to people who don't agree with them because that's what it means to have a worldview. Yeah. If, on the other hand, you were to say, oh, well, would you recommend John Piper's ministry? Depends where you're at. If you're looking for comfort in times of trials, fantastic resource. If you're wanting to know his testimony as uh, having a racist worldview and coming out of it because of the plain truth of the gospel, I highly recommend it. If you want to know more about Calvinism in a positive sense, he's a fantastic resource for that. But if you are wondering how to have a balanced view of scripture, if you want to have verse-by-verse teaching in a way that would affirm the non-Calvinistic passages as much as the pro, then I would say find another ministry because his is largely bent towards that. But it's not a false teacher at all. Yeah, and I think uh, the the lesson of why John Piper is controversial is a good lesson for all of us. Uh, John Piper got into hot water on a number of uh, different occasions, uh, making some controversial statements, but none more so than in uh, the midst of the uh, 2020 election. Uh, when he wrote, I am baffled that so many Christians consider the sins of unrepentant unrepentant sexual immorality, unrepentant boastfulness, unrepentant vulgarity, unrepentant uh, factiousness, and the like to be the only, uh, to be in the like, to only, to be only toxic for our nation, while policies that endure baby killing, sex switching, freedom limiting, and socialist overreach are viewed as deadly. Uh, His argument kind of came down to this. It's crazy for Christians to support uh, Donald Trump or to say that Trump's personal sins in his life are uh, more serious than, say, Joe Biden's policies, which we've seen carried out during the administration. You know, and so um, the, the framing of that particular argument seemed to be problematic at best. Uh, it wasn't uh, really clear. He doesn't compare, say, Trump's character with Biden's character, but he rather uh, compares Trump's Im- uh, alleged immoral character with uh, Biden's policies, uh, among them abortion on demand, which is clearly unbiblical and immoral. He's baffled that uh, other believers don't share that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I think uh, what it comes down to uh, is this, uh, you know, we as believers in Christ are, sh- are called to share God's word and his truth. We are not called to make character assessments on individuals running for office. Uh, when people ask me, you know, are you a Republican or a Democrat? I tell them I am a registered independent. And there's a reason for that. Uh, when I share God's word on a given time, whether it's Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or if you're on this program, I realize that there are going to be people with political affiliations across a wide spectrum uh, that might be tuning in. I do not want to so ally myself with a particular political position or a particular politician, pro or con, that I lose the ability to be able to share God's truth with people. And I think there is ample scriptural uh, evidence for all of this. If there was ever an individual, say historically, who deserved to have his immoral character brought into the light, it was certainly the Emperor Nero. Uh, the individual, among other things, uh, you know, uh, covered uh, believers with pitch, lit them on fire, and used them as tiki torches in his garden parties, uh, rode back and forth, and yelled the light of the world in front of them. And yet we don't see the Apostle Paul or Peter or John or anyone else devoting an epistle to calling out the immoralities personally 
of the Emperor Nero. Uh, rather, they stuck to the proclamation of the gospel in spite of the persecution going on from Emperor Nero. In fact, the only thing that we see in the scripture that tells us uh, about the attitude that some believers should have towards the Emperor Nero was to pray for those in authority over you. So, you know, the, the bottom line is this. Are people called to uh, contend about these political issues uh, on online? Are some believers uh, knee-deep in that sort of thing? Well, very possibly that is their calling from God. But my calling from God as a pastor is to teach the entire counsel of God's Word, chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse. And if we teach these policies, then hopefully individuals are going to be able to make up their minds uh, as far as uh, using their God-given franchise to vote in a representative form of government like the one we live in right now. Uh, I'm very, very clear about the fact that we don't endorse uh, particular politicians, but we do encourage people to vote for candidates that stand for biblical values. And the most important biblical values that I think that we tend to emphasize among people is, are they pro-life? Do they stand for the protection of the life of the unborn, the, 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 uh, the most vulnerable individuals in our culture? Do they stand with Israel? Uh, we feel that this is a biblical mandate based upon Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 and other passages of scripture that God promised Abraham, he would bless those who blessed him, uh, blessed his people and curse those who cursed them. So we do try to keep things as narrow as we possibly can on those particular areas. But we do believe that if an individual is born again as a believer in Christ, as they become more and more mature and become uh, more uh, adept at rightly dividing the word of truth, then a decidedly biblical worldview is going to impact everything in their lives, including where they stand on issues politically. So that's what our goal is, to share God's word in such a way that it transforms the lives of people, bringing them to a saving relationship with Jesus. We try to share the gospel, uh, how to be saved on this broadcast on a regular basis, if not every day. But we also want you to be able to understand how to apply God's word and how to have a, a scriptural perspective on the events of the day based upon understanding uh, God's truth as it's revealed, both the Old and New Testament. So, uh, you know, that's where I think uh, John Piper, uh, in my estimation, made a mistake. I think uh, he got uh, way too deep in calling out certain individuals and defining himself uh, politically rather than keeping to his mandate to uh, be a pastor who has in the past very effectively been an individual who has rightly divided the word of truth. So there you go. And then regarding the second ministry in regards to ministries that your nephew's been sucked into, uh, if you're concerned about any ministry, regardless of whether it's an outright cult or if it's just poor handling of scripture like the ones that you mentioned, right. the biggest area to focus on is on truth is on your own walk with God and to remain available for them because if you make that uh, offensive push to be in their lives for that reason and for that reason alone they're going to see you as nothing more than an adversary but if on the other hand they're looking into these things and you trust that the spirit will lead them into all truth you can ask them good questions you can answer questions of their own but if you don't allow the spirit to change hearts then 
understand you're not going to change minds. We need to make sure that both are in order and in working order in our own lives before we start dealing with the uh, issues of generations before or after us. And if they don't want to be convinced, then you don't waste any time. If they do want to be convinced, then they'll seek you out. That's the best comfort. But if, on the other hand, you um, have this concern regarding ministries that are undoubtedly poor handlers of Scripture, the hope is that in time they'll get tired of the sensationalism and start seeking out more biblical truth as they mature. But that, again, also takes a work of the Spirit and time for them to look into this for themselves. If it ultimately ends up being an obstacle to their relationship with God, you can ask them questions on that. But the good news is, unless they're hailing Joseph Smith or uh, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society organization, my observation, of course, is it could be much worse. If, on the other hand, you just disagree with this form of teaching, say, Dad, if uh, you found out that I was regularly listening to John Piper's sermons and I was adhering more and more to Calvinism, I think you'd have enough confidence in God's work in my life that in time it would level out. But if, on the other hand, it was starting to interfere with the local messages, if I was doing a section on Calvinism with our junior high and high schoolers, you'd ask me questions, and as also the senior pastor, you could make recommendations with authority and say, why don't we just stick to the Bible? But understand it wouldn't be a five-alarm fire. On the other hand, they're in fundamental denial of Scripture, which again can result in time. Make sure that you're not uh, taking preemptive steps and ending up coming across as that kind of relative. (laughs) That being said, uh, going out to our website, we have a question from Nina who wants to know, regarding looking for a spouse, uh, should we be attracted to occupation or quality? Um, Bible questions is, I think, the emphasis that we're talking about here. So why don't we take this into something that we can talk about properly when it comes to the sort of things to look for biblically? What is Christian dating according to Scripture? Yeah, uh, I I think that's a great question, Nina. And, uh, you know, I think it's a very practical question. There's an old saying, if you aim at nothing, you're always going to hit it. Uh, oftentimes when we get involved with the idea of uh, wanting to uh, find someone we can share the rest of our lives with scripturally, uh, we, uh, we don't really take the time to go back and say, all right, uh, I definitely need to understand what the Word of God says about the role, say, of husband and wife. And uh, is a person that I might be interested in getting to know better? Uh, do they have the kind of characteristics that God would want to have in terms of the two key ministries that happen within the realm of marriage? Uh, you know, as far as these two key ministries are concerned, there's a great book called uh, Marriage is a Ministry, and I think, uh, I think that is right on in terms of its title is concerned. But uh, one of the things that a lot of people never really get around to uh, taking a look at uh, before they get involved in the area of dating or seeking uh, the company of a member of the opposite sex is uh, found in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Here we see God's design for marriage laid out for us in the series of, uh, of a number of commandments that God gives if we are going to honor him in this institution Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands 
in everything. You know, one of the things that I share in premarital counseling, and oftentimes by the time a couple gets to premarital counseling, they're already pretty knee-deep as far as thinking this, this is definitely the one. But one of the things I share is this. What God wants a woman to look for in a man is a spiritual leader. Uh, in, in other words, when you look at this man you're considering marrying, do you see him as a woman to be the kind of spiritual leader that you would be willing to completely entrust yourself to uh, on the same level that the church trusts Jesus to be our spiritual leader. Uh, I mean, that's a, a very high standard. In other words, do I respect this man's walk with God on such a level that I'm willing to trust him and uh, be willing to maybe even defer to his leadership if we come to a place where we're uh, in disagreement about certain things, certainly uh, an individual like this is going to know God's word and be applying God's word, is being transformed by God's word. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul said this uh, about his relationship with those he ministered to, follow my example as I follow Christ. And so when a woman starts to look for a man in terms of someone to be married to, do they get to know this person enough in a lot of different sets of circumstances they can honestly say, you know what, although not perfect, who will ever live up to this kind of standard, this person is progressing in their walk with God. I admire their walk with God. I admire their knowledge of God's word. I admire their, their passion for the things of Jesus in such a way that I'm willing to entrust myself to them. Uh, I can uh, remember uh, one couple that I was counseling uh, and uh, it kind of came down to one of the last counseling sessions we had together where I went over the, the marriage ceremony that I do. And uh, I went through this particular passage and, say, uh, and said to the, the woman, do you feel like you are able to trust this man on this level? And she looked at me and she goes, there's no way I'm going to trust this guy to be my spiritual leader. There, there's just no way. I, I, just, I just know him too well. And uh, it was kind of the awkward silence, the, the, the pause uh, there. And I said, um, and the guy's turning about eight shades of, of pale, uh, you know, when this came out. I just said, well, this is the basic commitment that you are making here when you decide to get married to this man from a scriptural point of view. If you don't feel like you're at this place or you don't feel that this man fits this description in your life, you shouldn't get married. I think you guys need to talk. Well, they talked for about 45 minutes, and uh, then they invited me back in, and they said, yeah, I don't think we should get married. And boy, you know, you talk about being upset, and oh, you know, we've called the caterers and everything else like that. But it's interesting how both of them later on came to me within about six months and thanked me saying, you know, you kept us from making a huge mistake. So that's the first standard uh, there, Nina. The second standard if you're a guy, is this, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. They might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. They might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. The thing that I say to the man considering getting married is this. Do you look at this woman and has God given you this tremendous love for this woman that you would be willing to sacrifice anything personally for her betterment, 
from the large things of life to even the small things of life? Do you feel like God has called you and equipped you in such a way that you are skilled enough in God's Word, that you are strong enough in terms of ministering to another person, that you can come alongside and disciple this woman in such a way that she grows emotionally, spiritually, morally, physically, that in every way, just as like Jesus is a blessing to the church by laying his life down for the church, so you're ready to do that for this woman. And again, when this gets spelled out, uh, a lot of times people will go, oh, man, you know, I just thought she was kind of cute and we like to watch the same kind of movies. No, it's got to go a lot deeper than all of that. And so if you have these things in place, you know, if you have uh, negotiables and non-negotiables, people ask me sometimes, how did you know uh, your wife Pam was the one? Well, I had some negotiables and non-negotiables in place, and these were my non-negotiables. First of all, any woman I was going to be married to, we had to have a 100%, 100% commitment to following Jesus Christ. I had to see within her that she wanted to follow the Lord, not just because I was into following the Lord, but that she had her own walk with God, her own knowledge of the scriptures, her own fruitfulness in ministry that was alive and kicking apart from anything that had to do with me. Secondly, in my case, there had to be a 100%, 100% commitment to growing in a walk with Jesus Christ. I, I needed to know that uh, the, the best times in this person's life weren't in the rearview mirror, but that she was passionately committed not only to receiving but relating God's love. And thirdly, in my case, it was especially important. There had to be a 100%, 100% commitment on both of our parts to serve the Lord in the area of ministry. Uh, if I was into ministry and she was not, uh, you know, in a sense, that's almost being unequally yoked. If God has called you to that, you've got to be called to it together. And when I looked at Pam and I saw the work that God had done within her life, uh, and uh, over the, the space of uh, the, the year or so that we got to know each other before we made a commitment to be married to each other, I saw those things worked out within her life. And so I was willing to make that kind of commitment. And during that time, Pam had the opportunity to be able to see me up close and personal and uh, the times where I was hitting on all cylinders in public and uh, in private and, and uh, the times where I was doing well and times maybe I was under the weather or feeling sick. We had the opportunity to even work out disagreements that we had with one another and see if we were able to do that in a scriptural way. And so, you know, rather than falling into the trap and oftentimes this happens of going, man, uh, there's, I just feel so lonely. I got to find somebody, you know, oftentimes we see a lot of Christians, uh, kind of getting into this, I, I call the salmon model of, of finding somebody swimming upstream and spawning. And that's it. That was the goal of their life. Uh, instead of that, uh, you know, in finding a, a situation where you realize, okay, if God wants me to be married, I want to be married based upon what God's word has to say, not just because I've got this need within my life, but I want to see God's, God meet that need in a very special and specific way. Uh, one of the things that you discover the hard way, uh, and a lot of people do, is that there are worse things in life than being lonely. And one of the worst things that you can experience in life is being married to the wrong 
person, someone that doesn't share these, these basic values. So for Pam and myself, it was three things, 100%, 100% commitment to Jesus Christ and his word, 100%, 100% commitment to growing and dealing with our personal issues in, in our walk with God, and a 100%, 100% commitment to serving the Lord, uh, in my case, in the area of full-time ministry. And uh, by having those standards in place, it kept me focused in on who I needed to be married to and who I didn't need to be married to. And uh, boy, going on 30 years later, I think that standard worked out pretty well. And it's keeping me out of trouble in the meantime. Yes. Here's a question from, actually, I want to get to this one before time gets too far ahead of us on our website. Uh, why did Jesus weep over Jerusalem first? Why did he fast and pray since he is God? Thank you. Why? I'll address the second. Why did Jesus weep over Jerusalem? Good news is he told us, but would you like to read the passage? Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, I don't think it's a uh, case uh, that we uh, need to uh, lead to our imagination. In the book of Luke chapter 19 and verse 41, we read, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days shall come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, the idea of a visitation there was a special encounter with God that the people of Israel would have. This happened to them a number of times in their past history, but the ultimate one was when Jesus, God in human flesh, came on the scene. Now notice Jesus weeps over them because he knows that they, by and large, are going to reject him as the Messiah, which if you read through, uh, for instance, uh, Stephen's masterful uh, declaration of uh, God's dealings with the people of Israel and the coming of Messiah that we find in the book of Acts chapter 8. You can read through that on your own time. But one of the things that you discover in all of this is that there were times where God would say to the people of Israel, here I am, it's time to fish or cut bait, say yes or no to a relationship with me, and the consequences would be forthcoming. We see that, for instance, uh, in uh, the situation that uh, took place uh, a number of different times in the book of Judges, God getting the people's uh, attention over and over again in that era. We see uh, the uh, people of Israel choosing to have a king over them instead of having the Lord as their God and the consequences that would come out of that. We see, for instance, the people of the northern ten tribes of Israel choosing to have an ungodly king and not choosing to worship the true and living God, falling into idolatry and going into captivity in Assyria. We see the southern two tribes uh, doing the same thing and ending up in Babylonian captivity. But the ultimate one was when Messiah himself came on the scene. And notice Jesus emphasizes something there. He says, if you had known even you, especially in this, your day. Now, very fascinating. Uh, when we study the book of Daniel, chapter 9, we see that there were, from the time of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there would be 483 Jewish years, or 179,440 days. Uh, in other words, if you know when that decree went forth, you could also know when Messiah would come on the scene, 
Uh, well, we do know when that decree went forth. It was the decree of Artaxerxes that allowed uh, the people of Israel to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. It's recorded in the book of Nehemiah. Well, you do the math on all of this, and it brings you to the precise date that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey's colt and, pre and presented himself as the Messiah. Uh, you know, in other words, there was no excuse for anybody there to have missed Jesus when he came, not just because of the timing involved, but because of the nature of his ministry, the nature of his teaching, the nature of his sinless life, and so on. But uh, when the people of Israel turned away, there were going to be consequences. Again, uh, within 30-some years of Jesus making this declaration, uh, Jerusalem would be invaded, and uh, the temple itself would be leveled, just as Jesus predicted. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. In this case, it was willful ignorance. Now, notice Jesus weeps over that. It's not like Jesus saying, well, you should have seen me when I came, and I'm really mad at you guys. No, Jesus is heartbroken because he sees what they have chosen when they chose to say no to a relationship with him. And then I guess building on that, a question from Mary that I was going to lead into, but it dovetailed. Um, in John 2, 24 through 25, it notes that Jesus wouldn't commit himself to men for he knew what was in man. She wants to know if it was because he was angry about what he saw in their hearts. No, I think he just knew uh, that uh, no matter how much the popularity uh, of, uh, of his ministry would rise at certain times, because he is God and because he sees inside of people. And in the Gospel of John, we see that uh, in chapter 1 demonstrated uh, when Jesus uh, looks at a guy like Nathaniel and says, uh, who is, here is a true uh, son of Israel whom there is no guile. And uh, Nathaniel uh, said, uh, how do you know me, sir? And he says, uh, before I called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Well, that was a place that was traditionally used as a place of prayer. And Nathaniel says, uh, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah of Israel. He goes, uh, yeah, you believe because you saw that, you're going to see greater signs than these. In fact, he said that you're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, even the greatest promise that God gave to the prophet Jacob would be fulfilled in that, that arena. So all of that just to say, uh, Jesus wasn't swayed by popularity. He wasn't uh, playing to a crowd. Oftentimes that's a real temptation, even for people in ministry today, to emphasize uh, sermons or topics or ministries that uh, tend to be popular with people and sort of uh, stand away from the things that might not be popular with people. Bible prophecy is a great example of that. There's all kinds of uh, churches out there that say we do not teach uh, Bible prophecy or the book of Revelation because it just upsets people. Uh, we, we saw even a study that was done that some pastors uh, have said they don't want to teach that because if people think that Jesus is coming back, they might not tithe. Uh, you know, once again... I don't follow uh, the logic, but okay. Yeah, because they, they think, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, then I'll just keep my money for myself. Uh, but the, the, the bottom line in all of this is really important for us to grasp. Uh, just as there are people that play to the crowd and seek popularity and define success in ministry by numbers, Jesus was always seemingly interested in thinning out the crowd. Uh, in John chapter 6, he laid down a series of heavy-duty uh, statements to those who were following him after he fed the 5,000 men, not counting women and children, with a few loaves and fishes. He says, first of all, you're not following me. Uh, because, uh, you know, you heard the word and believe you're following me because your stomachs were, f were filled. 
don't work for the uh, the bread that perishes. Uh, work for the the uh, bread of life that the Messiah Himself will give to you. And he pretty much got down to the point where he said, "Look, I'm the bread of life. You got to take me into your heart in order to be right with God." And uh, in John chapter six and verse sixty-six, we're told uh, that many of his disciples even said, "This is a hard saying. Who can hear it?" And they walked away and weren't following him anymore. So Jesus was always interested not in the popularity, the numbers, if you will, but the heart of those who were following him. Yeah, note in verse 23. And what's also important is other passages may be misconstrued as to say, oh, Jesus was angry with people when he saw their hearts. No, like, for example, in John chapter 11, where it says when he saw the weeping, he groaned within himself. And they'd say, oh, see, Jesus was mad at him because they were grieving. No, he joined in and grieved with them. So he'd have to be mad at himself if that's the interpretation. Yeah. The passage itself clarifies the setting that he was talking about committing himself to men. Why? Because he knew their hearts. He wasn't going to commit them because they weren't committed to him. That's all that we need to take. But no, then, he, he wasn't angry. He was there to save them. Yeah. But then going back to the question we started with on the website, if Jesus was God, why did he fast and pray? Now, pay attention because this is one that will come in handy with Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims as well. Three passages to keep in mind. The first and probably the most succinct is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Uh, this is what's called the Carmen Christi, I believe the hymn to Christ, which is emphasizing what Jesus did, but also supported by John chapter 1 and verse 14, I believe, or is it 12? Uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah. Um, noting that point. John, uh, 114. 14, yeah. okay. Uh, verse 5 says, this is Philippians 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, meaning that God, the highest thing, he wouldn't lose anything if he was equal with God. So right. where does that put him? Right. With God. He's, so that's he's God. God. Yeah. But made himself of no reputation, note this, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men right. and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient to what? We'll get that in a moment. To death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, and then it notes that God will give him the name which is above every name. What's that? God, yeah. <laughs> the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But note the point. He came as a man. And in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh. Now, we cross-reference this with other terms, like the Old Testament, for example, where God is classified in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 27 as the God of all flesh. Now, if God were to remain God, how would he relate to God? Well, as a trinity, someone in perfect alignment with their nature and would do the sort of things we'd expect from God. He wouldn't lie. He would tell the truth. He would be able to create. Right. He wouldn't be bound by time and space and matter. But of all those things that are of God, that's what we'd expect of him, right? Now, does God pray? Well, in a sense, he's capable of communicating with himself. We see examples of it, for instance, in Isaiah 48, verse 16, or uh, in the Exodus where the angel of the Lord, who's identified as the Lord, tells them to go up to the Lord and communes with them there. Yep. We can talk about other instances, but the point stands. God is capable of communicating with himself, but you also mentioned fasting. Can God you know, withhold something from himself if it's to pursue a better fellowship with himself? That's 
not really silly, but that's certainly self-explanatory. God's already completely fulfilled in that, and he doesn't have a stomach or any of these other apparatus that you would deprive yourself of to pursue God further. He's already at the highest. But what you're talking about is in godly conduct, so make sure you set this up, because if you're talking to a Muslim or Jehovah's Witness, they're going to cut you off every third of a sentence. The yeah. first thing to yeah. note but is yeah. the first thing to note is when Jesus prayed, he was communicating with his Father. Why would he do that? Well, just like we talked about, the things that God does by nature, would he have to pray? No. Do we have to pray as man? Because yes. what yeah. is man's nature? something designed for fellowship with God, something that needs regular communion and dependence on God, something that can deprive themselves physically in order to pursue better fellowship with God. Why? Because this is man's all. To seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's right. a partial quotation of Micah 6, 7. Six, but, eight. Eight. <laughs> but noting the point when we're talking about these things. If Jesus were to put on flesh, he's no longer God, the Son, he's God-man. He has two coinciding natures. He still functions as God, and as we saw, he knows the hearts and minds of men. That is something that only God does, according to Jeremiah 17 and verse 11. Again, I'm on a streak of error, so check me on that. I know it's in Jeremiah 17. But the point also then stands, would a man in perfect fellowship with God, with the nature in perfect alignment with God, pray. Well, I don't see him becoming an atheist. That's a start. But the second thing is, would a man in perfect alignment with God's nature fast? What would you expect from someone, a man, that has not only human nature, but God's nature? I'd say that he's incapable of sin, but capable of sin. How does that fit? Well, that's a sinless man, someone who feels the desire to sin, but because of God's nature conjoined with it, would also not act on it. What would we expect from God if he became a man? Would he overeat? Would he undereat? Or would he eat in perfect alignment with God's nature? In his prayers, would he pursue God? Would he neglect God? Or would he do the sort of things we'd expect from God? Yeah. This is the point. So when we're talking about Jesus coming in the form of man, and as John notes in further detail, taking on flesh, he became flesh, how is God going to relate to this God-man? Well, as flesh, he'd relate to him as his God. We see this repeated over and over again in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, as well as in 22, where he notes that I have not yet, or in the Gospel of John as well, at his resurrection, he reminds Mary Magdalene, I have not ascended to your father and my father, my God and your God. He notes that he is the root and the offspring of David, and that he is dedicating us to his God. In the church to, uh, or the letter to the church of, I think it was, either Thyatira or maybe Sardis. We'll verify that in a moment. But he was making an observation that I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, right. and he shall go out no more. And he repeats that several times. But noting, he's relating to the Father as his God. Why? Because the Word became flesh. God is the God of all flesh. But does that mean he ceased to be God? No, but we see what God would look like with skin on. That's the point of Philippians 2, John 1, and many others. We can go to Colossians 1. We can go to yeah. uh, Snowden. That's going all the way to the beginning of Exodus. But the point being made is that if we follow John, or, uh, Paul's rather point in Romans where he said that the last Adam, 
this man in perfect fellowship with God that literally undoes everything that was done before him. We're looking at what that godly life looks like. And the epistles repeat this often. In him you have a perfect example, Peter said, because he committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. Now that's intentional. Why? Because in the book of Numbers it notes God's not a man that he should lie. So if Peter's identifying someone that is incapable of deceit, that's a divine claim. So how do we reconcile this? Well, we note what it affirms. Was Jesus fully man? Yes, he was yes. tempted in the wilderness as well as before his crucifixion and every time in between. That's Did right. he pursue prayer? Yes, just like we all should. But in that is a perfect example, not because he had to, but because what else would he do? Discontinue his fellowship with the Father or continue it the way we all ought to be? And, of course, would he fast? Yes, as necessity would pursue. Not because he needed to, but because he got to. He wanted fellowship with his father. He found it even more valuable than his daily food. But when we're talking about these things, it's ultimately going to stand or fall on whether or not we take Jesus at face value or at what's put in front of us as value as who he ultimately was. If you start the conversation with Jesus wasn't God, now what does it mean that the word became flesh? Well, let's get around that Jeremiah 32 passage and say, obviously, uh, he's going to stick to being just another creation. Okay, what do you do about Micah 5 to? Not relevant. Uh, What do you do with uh, all these references to him being before all things? Not relevant. Okay, what do you do with Philippians 2? Not relevant. Uh, He he was made like he was given the name. That means he didn't have it. Okay, but he was equal with God before that passage. Not relevant. You see the problem. So make sure that when it comes to reconciling all these details about Jesus, A, you've read the book, B, you keep the book in order, and C, you don't let people set the agenda for what is and isn't relevant in the text. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it would be really shocking and surprising if Jesus is the perfect man and God that we wouldn't see him doing things perfectly, like having a perfect uh, example for us to follow of a spiritual relationship with him. That's why we are told, uh, you know, therefore laying aside every weight in the sin that so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jesus didn't just, uh, you know, say, come on the scene, say, okay, I'm here to die for your sins on the cross. Uh, let's get the party started. Uh, he had a three-year ministry so that we could behold his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And by beholding that, we now have not just Jesus' exhortation, but his example to follow in terms of our own relationship with God. All right. Uh, we've got a little bit of time here, so why don't we try to get to as many as we can? I wanted to get to uh, one here. It's an interesting question. Uh, it comes uh, from uh, Light Dragon on our uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship site about uh, serving the Lord in our occupations. Uh, you know, how, how in fact do we do that? Well, uh, the, the uh, basic way that I think that we can do that is found in the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 3 and verse 23. It says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and that with no partiality. I think if you've just got that particular uh, verse there, Light Dragon, uh, you've got a great compass heading for how you serve the Lord. You know, sometimes I think we separate the spiritual 
and the secular in our lives. And we say, oh, you know, those individuals who serve God in ministry, they're the ones who do the spiritual work. Well, you'd be surprised how much of uh, what we call ministry uh, isn't really spiritual. A lot of it is involved with keeping up the grounds. A lot of it's involved with paying bills. A lot of it is involved uh, with dealing with, uh, with uh, different uh, individuals in a very uh, kind of business-like sense in a lot of ways. But there's nothing unspiritual uh, about doing these kind of things. Is it more spiritual when I'm, say, for instance, preaching a sermon on Sunday morning and less spiritual than when, you know, I see there's a bunch of trash left out or, you know, someone has driven by and dumped their lunch out front. I go out of my way to pick it up. Uh, the, the key thing is, why am I doing either? If I'm not doing a message on Sunday morning under the Lord, if I'm just doing it to please men, then that is utterly void as far as being any kind of spiritual service to God. It might sound spiritual. God might even use it in the lives of people because he honors his word. But it won't accrue to any kind of heavenly blessing for me personally because my heart's in the right, wrong place. Am I more right on if, say, someone leaves a stinky diaper in our parking lot and I say to myself, well, if I don't pick this up, somebody else has got to. And, you know, nobody's looking. I go over and I pick up the stinky and dispose of it. But I did it just between me and the Lord. Is that more or less godly than preaching a sermon? There's no distinction, if you will. It's not what we do, it's why we do it. Better who we do it for, according to Colossians. Uh, you know, you can uh, you know, be a teller in a credit union and serve the Lord uh, because you're doing what you do as under the Lord. You're, you're ministering to the people who come to you needing help with their finances. And if you do that with the love of the Lord, you do it with the integrity of Jesus Christ, you'll never lose your spiritual reward. In fact, that is going to be equally rewarded with someone that, say, stands before 50,000 people and preaches the gospel, maybe even more so because uh, you're not getting the attaboys and the adoration, the pat on the back, the guy who's sharing with 50,000 people is getting. So it really kind of comes down to not just what we do, but the why. Yeah. Any ministry is or uh, ministry isn't an occupation. It's an attitude we bring to our occupation for and to whom we do it for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, here comes the music. We'd hate to sign off so soon, but we thank you all for the time that was spent with program. us. Just wonderful questions. Thank you guys so much for that. And we'll see you all again next time. Till then, God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.